text for the sermon is taken from the epistle. Whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Uh, the epistle for this Sunday establishes the fact that Christians are those who have been born again, born of God, and thus Christians have God as their Father, and they have already entered into eternal life. That means that Christians, because they have God uh, as their Father, participate uh, in the life of God, which is in fact the only eternal life there is. And I've preached a lot about participation. You know, participation, by that I mean that you are actually, uh, in, a, in a true, literal way, uh, implanted into the life of God so that we draw life from Him. None of us exist except we exist in God's own existence because we have no existence apart from God. That's what participation is. Same way that a, that a, a fetus participates in the life of his mother. Uh, we perpetually participate uh, in, in the life of God, and it'll never be any other way. Uh, so, uh, but how is it, so my question is, then how is it that our flesh and blood can participate in the eternal life of God, which is pure spirit? The gospel for this Sunday uh, is the well-known story of the evening of the resurrection. Uh, Easter Sunday begins with the morning of the resurrection, while the first Sunday after Easter uh, begins with the evening of the resurrection. The narrative of Easter tells the story of Mary Magdalene searching for Jesus' crucified uh, body uh, and discovering instead Jesus Christ resurrected and glorified on the doorsteps of the tomb in broad daylight. The narrative for this Sunday tells the story of Jesus coming to his disciples who had gathered in a lighted room, probably the very same room, uh, in fact, in which uh, he had instituted uh, the Holy Communion. Uh, outside that room, uh, the dark night surrounded Jerusalem. But Christ, who is the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world, stood in the midst of them, his dazzling body bearing those dear tokens of his passion. He lit up their life and their hearts. Not only did they experience his resurrection, uh, but he gave them the commission that his father had given him uh, before the world uh, was, which he verified, confirmed, and authenticated uh, by ordaining them right then uh, with apostolic power. This is in John 22. And when he had said these things, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. Whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Now that's a lot to take in. Uh, and, and so this Sunday, what I want to do is to put to you a principle, an axiom, that will help you understand how God's will for humanity and God's word to humanity uh, advances in time. 
that is how God's will and God's word unfolds uh, in history. Uh, and this is an axiom that uh, I want you to take hold, hold of, and one that you've heard, many of you anyway have heard, some of you have probably never heard this, but, but most of you have heard me speak of this before. And, and the, uh, the principle is this. Uh, grace perfects nature. Grace perfects nature. Grace does not destroy nature. Extraordinarily important that we get hold of that and understand what that means. Grace perfects nature. Grace does not destroy nature. God does not discard creation. He retains it, appropriates it. He assumes and widens it into a high state of being, thus perfecting it. But I want to take this also a step further. Not only does grace perfect nature, but in God's real world, nature requires grace. For nature to reach its ultimate potential, for grace to achieve uh, God's finality, grace uh, is required. So what that means is that grace is not something added onto nature, like you'd add a second story to your home, but rather that grace uh, is the thing that completes and perfects nature. More of this. Are y'all with me? Okay. But, okay, so what's grace? Uh, when I was growing up, like many of you, a very similar tradition, I was taught simply that grace is unmerited favor, uh, which is true, but it doesn't go far enough. Uh, Un, that, that uh, the free and undeserved help of God uh, uh, gave us uh, so that we might respond to his call to be his children. Yes, that's true. Uh, that's correct. But what I want you to see, listen to what I'm saying, what I want you to see is that grace is not just something uh, uh, given to you from the outside. Grace is actually a state of being. For human beings, it's a state. Grace is a state of being. Uh, grace is participation in the life of God. To be in a state of grace is to be participating in the life of the God who is God, which is equivalent to be to participating uh, in eternal life. So, how does that happen? How do we participate in the life of God? Uh, the way we normally, and I can say this, I bet y'all could finish this, some of you, most of you probably, you, you know the answer to this. The way we normally begin to participate in the life of God is through our incorporation into the human nature of Jesus Christ. That's why he had to be a human being. Uh, I mean, we can participate in the human nature of Christ uh, in Jesus Christ's life because he is a human being like us. Uh, but Christ is whole and complete and so to participate in his human humanity uh, also of necessity to participate in his divine life because you can't divide uh, you can't divide Christ. But how does that happen? Uh, well, uh, how are we incorporated into the human nature of Jesus Christ. The way we are normally incorporated into the human nature of Jesus Christ is through holy baptism, as you well know. Uh, and then, once incorporated, uh, then we are nurtured in the church 
as we appropriate the other sacraments and especially the sacrament, repeat it over and over again, the sacrament of the altar, the blessed sacrament, the Holy Communion. Uh, the sacraments are instruments that infuse and nurture a state of grace. And so when I say grace perfects nature, I mean that our participation in the life of God per, uh, perfects uh, our human nature. It does uh, participation in the life of God, grace does not make us into something other than what we are. Something less than, neither more than a human being or less than a human being. It actually enables us to achieve our full potential as human beings. And that full potential is something that we can't guess. We don't know. Uh, you know, ears not heard. Uh, nor has I seen what God has prepared for his children. We really, it's far beyond our horizon to understand completely uh, what God's, what our finality as a human being, although we do have uh, some uh, evidence given to us in the resurrection. Of first importance uh, is to realize that God does not discard creation. This is what I want you to get a hold of. God does not discard the matter of creation. Uh, it is the way of the world to discard one thing for another, to abandon the old for the new. The world seems to wear out, and then it is replaced. Uh, and that may seem right. Uh, there's the way that seemeth right unto man, but the way thereof is the way of, of, of death. Uh, uh, it, it may seem fitting to cast much of nature on the scrap pile in order to rebuild. But this, listen to what I'm saying, this is a prime example of what the children of God must overcome. This very notion of discarding nature, of discarding creation, of discarding everything that means something in our life. It's a way of the world to think and to live according to the principle of discussion, of principle of dis destruction. But that is not God's way of doing things. And, and, and that's why we have to, we have to all remind ourselves of that and not be taken in by it, but also to, to repel it. So let me give you a couple of examples from last week uh, in order to talk about how God perfects nature rather than discards nature. Okay, that's what I'm talking about. Some examples of how nature isn't discarded, but how nature is perfected. And you've, many, most of you have heard this before. Uh, the tableau of the angel sitting on the stone slab where the body of Jesus has lain wrapped in a bloody shroud. Now, do you have that in your mind when I say that? You do, don't you? You see it in your mind's eye. Our Lord laid on the tomb wrapped up in the shroud. Uh, I frequently pointed out that uh, that was a living icon and that any Jew would have recognized it. Uh, it presented to us by John and what it does it communicates to the church that in Jesus the intentions of the sacrifices summed up uh, in the mercy seat were assumed they were enlarged and transformed and perfected in our Lord uh, the mercy seat of Moses is perfected because that's what any Jew would have looked at that and they would have thought of the Ark of the Covenant where there were two angels on either side and where the uh, blood was sprinkled. 
the mercy seat of Moses, though this is the point I'm making, it's not set aside, it's not thrown onto the scrap heap of history. God continues to retain, to assume, to enlarge, and to transform, and to sublate, to protect his work, uh, to perfect his work. So it may be even the case that St. John's vision of the Ark of the Covenant in heaven, as recorded in Revelation eleven nineteen, carries forward this very point that God retains but transforms in such a way that the thing achieves its finality and frequently that perfect end is achieved in a way we could not have guessed and is frequently baffling to us. And so the mercy seat that Mary discovered uh, transformed and perfected the mercy seat of the Old Testament while at the same time the mercy seat that Mary discovered uh, is in itself transformed and perfected in yet a ner- another mercy seat, namely the altar of God, where we have again our Lord coming to us uh, and where we have the two candles representing uh, two angels. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus said, This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So specifically, the final mercy seat, which assumes, transforms the mercy seat of the Old Testament and then assumes uh, and, and the mercy seat of Calvary is the altar of God where the Holy Communion is celebrated daily and will continue to be celebrated until he returns. One final example. One final example of how grace perfects nature. And then the same, this is taken from John 22. And then the same day of evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side, and the, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. The narrative for this Sunday tells the story of Jesus coming to his disciples who had gathered in the lighted room behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. Uh, Outside the room, dark night surrounded Jerusalem. But Christ, who is the true light, the lighteth every man that cometh into the world, stood in the midst of them, his body bearing those dear tokens of his passion. In other words, and this is the, this is the thing to get. Uh, the Jesus that appeared to his disciples on the first day of the week uh, and, and, uh, and came, uh, as that first day came to an end, was the same Jesus who was nailed to the cross of Calvary. You've got to understand that. That is absolutely fundamental to realize that that is the same Jesus who was nailed to the cross of Calvary. And as I said at the beginning today, so what you're seeing in the resurrection is not the discarding of human flesh. It's not uh, the discarding of the material life. It's not that we're merely spirit, but it is the transformation of human flesh into something we would have not guessed. Uh, 
as I said at the beginning today, to really grasp the analogy of faith requires the other step, and that is not only does grace perfect nature, uh, but in God's real world, nature requires grace. The human body of Jesus Christ had been changed, and it had taken on qualities that are entirely new for human beings, and you never would have guessed. When the text indicates that Jesus came and stood in the midst of them, what that means is that the time-honored, customary way of getting into a room, namely walking through a door, uh, had become obsolete and will be obsolete in the resurrection. Furthermore, this is important as well, Jesus' body was recognized by everyone in that room to be Jesus' body and not someone else's body, which means that in the resurrection, though our bodies will emerge transformed as creatures of beauty, agility, and unimagined powers, we and others will still recognize one another for who we are as well as who we have become in a state of God's grace. As a winged monarch, butterfly, emerges, this is the last point I want you to get, and I'm reversing things here just to give you a little hint. Uh, listen to me. As a winged monarch, butterfly, emerges from the state of being a worm, the fact of the matter is that the worm was made to become a monarch. In other words, it is the nature of the worm to end up with splendid wings and to float above the clouds. Something you would never have guessed in looking at a worm. And the same is true for us. Nature and grace will always surprise us. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, that this life is in his Son, that he that hath the Son hath life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.